Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, though they're arguably Harrison and Star, Cliff and Bobo. So, Bobo, how you doing this evening? Good. How you doing, Cliff? I'm doing all right. Just after a long day of work, hanging out with my friend Bobo, and got a great other friend on the podcast tonight. You want to introduce this gentleman, or shall I? I can take it. Hit it, Bobes. Okay, Cliff, today we have one of my favorite crypto authors, definitely in the top three, I think, for the whole field. That's global rankings there. Is Lyle Blackburn, straight out of Texas. Lyle, welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. And that's quite an honor, uh, you know, globally to be up that high on the list. I appreciate that. Yeah, especially when you write local books, right? Well, many times, yes. So, yeah, that's uh, it's good. I guess the subject matter has a worldwide appeal, however. So, I was shocked at your uh, writing skills. I mean, I thought it was going to be like something like a Howard writer or something, you know, just like a general cryptozoologist guy just writing, you know. And I was like, dang, I read it. I was super impressed. And I talked to you. You actually have like a degree in English, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, in, in I, I, as opposed to somebody who's interested in this subject who then wanted to write a book, it's sort of like I'm, you know, I've been a professional writer in some regards for my whole life in the degree. So I just, you know, this is my fascination. So I brought to it, you know, sort of a, uh, a pro writing approach to, you know, this, this subject. So I think that kind of helps me and gives me an advantage. Oh yeah. I mean, yours stand out. I mean, so many of the books are just written by enthusiasts and not professional writers are, you know, in yours, it's clear that you can write like other writers would appreciate that you're what you write. Sure. And I mean, you know, the, the, all the books are interesting, even if it's, you know, the insights from, you know, an enthusiast, but surely uh, I try to, and in fact, when I write the books, I try to write it so that I can reel in people who may have a skeptical view of this, you know, I'm writing for sort of everybody. So that way, of course, you know, if you believe in Bigfoot or you've seen a Bigfoot or something like that, or a cryptid, you know, you're, you're all in already, but I, I always try to make it well balanced and, uh, you know, put it so that if somebody just picked this thing up and started reading, they go, oh, wow, okay, you know, this, you know, maybe this stuff does happen. Maybe somebody uh, has seen these. So I try to make sure that I appeal to everybody. That's important, though, because a lot of people, uh, you had to know your audience. That's like one of the first rules of writing. And a lot of people set out to write a book for the audience of Bigfooters. And a lot of times that's not really the audience that's reading these things. Now, sure, the diehard skeptics or the people who just there's no chance that Bigfoot is real. They don't pick up a book and read it because it's reflected in the fact that they're diehard skeptics and Bigfoots can't be real. But there's a whole segment of the population that are interested in the subject that want to be convinced. You know, they want to learn more. They want to they want Bigfoot to be real. And so you have to include them in your audience as well. And I think you do an excellent job doing. Yeah, thanks. Yeah definitely that's when i when i picture the readership you know i you know and having a background with fans in music and i've written for major horror magazines and stuff i kind of picture that those folks that may not normally pick up a book like this you know on bigfoot or cryptids or whatever i'm writing if they do i'm I'm picturing that they pick it up and then they really start to see that it's you know there's something to this phenomenon so i picture those readers as well as certainly all the you know the bigfoot enthusiasts that you know we see at conferences and and hang out with in the field 
Have you always been a Bigfoot enthusiast? Is that why you write about it nowadays? Or, uh, I mean, certainly something in the past planted a seed with you. What was Well, that? I think, yeah, de- definitely something that as far back as I can remember, as, as soon as I was exposed to the subject matter, I was fascinated with it. I, you know, I early on, I gravitated towards horror movies and monsters and spooky things, and I liked that. And then at some point in grade school, they, they had the little scholastic reader um, catalog where you could order order a book and I ordered this one called Strange But True and it had stories of Bigfoot Loch Ness Monster the Yeti and when I read those I'm like whoa and then then I saw uh, the Patterson Gimlin film on TV and I saw In Search Of and I saw The Legend of Boggy Creek in a drive-in and that all of that just you know captured me so I was always into the subject all along but you know I wasn't you know, an active researcher or doing anything about it other than just reading and kind of following along. It was only later where I was looking to write a book. I was like, well, what is my favorite subject? What am I most interested in? What would I want to like look into as a nonfiction book? And that that's when I said, you know, Bigfoot, you know, specifically Legend of Boggy Creek, that would be what I would want to write about and just went from there. In the Bigfoot world, the you're most associated with Boggy Creek. I mean, the Momo movie came out, so that that got some good press and exposure. But I think far and wide, you're known as the Boggy Creek guy. Yeah, which is kind of you know surreal and an honor for me because uh, you know that was as I mentioned, I'd seen the Legend of Boggy Creek when I was young, and that that was in Falk, Arkansas, which is about three hours from where I grew up here in Texas near Fort Worth, Dallas. And when I saw that, that's when I realized that some of these creatures may be much closer to me than I imagined because, you know, stories of the Yeti and Loch Ness Monster and Pacific Northwest Bigfoot, those seem so far away, but that was something that was sort of my home. And the, and then, you know, having just the passion for that movie, I've seen it over and over and over and in writing the book. And that was my first book, The Beast of Boggy Creek. That sort of set me on that path that I was recognized as the Boggy Creek guy. And, and I frankly, I was surprised that nobody had written a book on that. As famous as that was with the movie and all the hubbub and the, you know, the interest and the people that still come to Falk, I was like, I can't believe nobody's written a book. So other than Smokey Crabtree, who wrote an autobiography, uh, autobiography, which includes the Falk monster, but it wasn't a book that covered the whole history. So I, I think I picked the right subject to enter this this genre of, of writing with and it just you know i hit a home run right there and i've appreciated the response and stuck with that even though i've written a lot of other books six books to date they always sort of mention or tie in boggy creek in some way well you're still involved with the boggy creek old film in town and the re, the new 4K re-release and all that you're still direct, uh, intimately involved with the whole Boggy Creek saga. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would have never dreamed that the, the movie would have ultimately been restored and put on Blu-ray. Um, that people, you know, the the monster mart there in Falk would have revised itself with a giant Bigfoot coming over the building, and so many people go there. And that you know, there's been documentaries and and you guys uh, covering that on Finding Bigfoot and me being able to be on the episode, all those things have just kind of made a continual, I don't say career, but an ongoing uh, association with that. So there's always something new that's Boggy Creek, and I'm always happy to be involved in it. It's an, it's, I know it's an honor, but man, what a heavy responsibility that is, too. Because if you turned out some sort of schlock crap book, you know, on Boggy Creek, everybody would hate you um, because everybody loves the movie so much. And, you know, the, how the Bigfoot community loves to hate, right? So they would just come after you with pitchforks and torches and stuff. But you turned out a real gem there, man. And, um, and that, but still, I, I, the, the point is like that the responsibility that goes with that, it must weigh down on your shoulders a little bit, I would think think because um, you you like owe it so to speak to not only the Bigfoot community but to yourself and the people of Falk and the monster and th- there's so many levels of responsibility there that I think a lot of uh, Bigfooters forget about that side of it this is a heavy thing you're carrying and we really appreciate it 
Yeah, and, and to this, yeah, that's that's actually true because I feel like that there's if there's anything. Boggy Creek, especially if there's a news channel that's going to come down there or a TV crew or somebody wants to mention it in their book or whatever, I always feel as though I must do what I can to make sure that goes well and it's accurate and it portrays the history of the creature correctly and accurately and it and it you know is respectful to the the folks of in falk so yeah it's like i almost can't turn down anything that comes around that's involved in boggy creek simply because i want it to be is you know reflect the true nature of it so yeah it is a it is a responsibility well yeah it's spoken like a true bigfooter as well um because i know that i'm very i'm 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 honestly a little bit too um concerned about you know bigfoots being portrayed correctly in movies or documentaries or tv shows or anything like that uh because i kind of take it personally The, the the subject has given me and my friends so much um in every way of our lives, you know, in every aspect of our lives that I want the subject to be treated appropriately. So I can, I can kind of empathize with you about the Boggy Creek thing specifically. You're doing the right thing. So uh, just another reason to love Lyle Blackburn. All right. And, and, you know, if you think about it, so you imagine how much time we've spent within this subject, you know, you, me, Bobo, and, and a lot of our peers. And then here comes some, you know, TV reporter that did a bit of Googling and is about to, you know, comment on some, you know, whether it's Boggy Creek or some other case of Bigfoot. Yeah, it's like you're like, you feel that (laughs) panic because you're like, you don't know how they're going to portray it. So you try desperately to make sure that they take it seriously. And yeah, there's, there's moments like that when I'm like, oh, please, you know, don't make this a mockery, you know. Yeah, exactly. And that's the, that's the easy way to go for news reporters and, you know, every, media in general. It's just the easy way to go. So you got to always be on guard for that. That was the first book. And so the, the, that book, uh, Beast of Boggy Creek, really puts you on the research side of, of the Bigfoot thing instead of just being a fan of the subject in general, it sounds like. Um, so where did it go from there? So after the Beast of Boggy Creek came out, you know, and that and. You know, I wrote that book simply mostly for me because I wanted to know the history and the facts behind the movie and the case. And I wanted to uh, investigate these more modern reports because, you know, a lot of people thought all that just happened in the 1970s and there had been sightings all along. So, uh, you know, once that came out, the response was great. People loved my writing. They loved the subject. And then, like I said, you know, I was on Monsters and Mysteries in America shortly thereafter and then Finding Bigfoot. So I thought, okay, all this is great. What do I do next? You know, I never even thought about a next. So I did what any rational person would do. I went on what's what I called a swamp tour. And that entailed driving (laughs) hundreds and hundreds of miles throughout the southeast portion of the U.S. going to swamps that had long histories of sightings of, you know, strange creatures. And I guess the reason I did that is because I I liked the swampy kind of spooky atmosphere of Boggy Creek. And I thought, well, what are some other cases that are like that and so i just sort of was out there doing some research and my uh my longtime friend cindy lee went with me and so we enjoyed the trip and one of those places we went to is bishopville south carolina where back in the 1980s people had reported seeing this sort of upright reptilian humanoid creature people called the lizard man and i met with a police uh ex-retired sheriff out there and kind of looked into the case and thought well that's pretty cool and i kind of was thinking i was going to write a book about swamps or something or, or monsters in swamps i didn't i didn't quite know but that that case was kind of intriguing and to me it was kind of like a modern day creature from the black lagoon type thing And it it even kind of tied into Bigfoot as well with some of the theories and possibilities and what some of the people had just even described it looking like. So I decided to write a book about the Lizard Man, uh, partly because that kind of was a similar kind of small town monster case, but also because it wasn't a Bigfoot case. And I thought, you know as much as Bigfoot is my number one interest here, I I wanted to create early on that I was, you know, interested in all of these kind of crazy phenomenon of 
small town being associated with creatures. So, so lizard man was the next and people, you know, responded well to that and appreciated the way I thoroughly investigated and talked about that case the same way I did with Boggy Creek. For the people that don't know, the Lizardman case in South Carolina, what's so unique about it was the fact that local law enforcement and the officials around there believed the kid that started, the, I don't know if it started it, but what really got the thing going big time was that a kid got attacked, a teenage boy, and they said there was evidence. What was that evidence, Lyle? Yeah, the, the uh, sheriff's office spoke to that young man, uh, Christopher Davis, who came into the office because there had been a previous incident where people living outside of Bishopville near Skateboard Swamp had woke up one morning and their car looked like it had been attacked by an animal or something. And it was just very bizarre. It's almost like vandalism, but they could tell it was animals and or an animal. And so they called the sheriff's department down there and they were puzzled. And then some people mentioned that, oh, well, maybe it was the lizard man. And the sheriff, Sheriff Truesdale said, you know, what do you mean? And they said, well, people around here have been seeing this big, tall, brownish or greenish creature we call the lizard man. So there was a newspaper reporter that ended up kind of putting that in a story. And that prompted a young man named Christopher Davis and his father to come into the sheriff's office and relay to Sheriff Truesdale this this sensational story about how he had gotten a flat tire one night out there in Skateboard Swamp, and he was just finishing changing it, and he looked up in the moonlight and saw what he first took to be a person coming at him through the fennel grass there. And I mean, that's scary enough being out there all alone. But then as it got closer, he said he, he realized that this isn't a person. This is some sort of what looks like a a reptilian looking thing and so he jumped in the car and tried to escape and this thing tried to grab him and pull him out of the car and in the process it was scratching and it broke off the driver's side rearview mirror and uh or the outside mirror there of the car and he raced home and explained this to his father so they had kept silent because you know who do you tell about this people think you're crazy but when they saw the newspaper report and came down and reported the sheriff's office uh sheriff truesdale really believed this kid he he was not sure what to make of a whole lizard man concept but he knew that something had happened to this kid and so that added credibility to the story and then from there more people came forward saying they had seen it and all that and the sheriff's office and the deputies they took it seriously and looked into it even so far as to getting people to write down what they had seen affidavits they had them do drawings and uh Whereas most of these kind of cases, whether it be Bigfoot or Lizard Man, the police just will blow it off. But in this case, there was a lot of police documentation um, simply because the police thought, you know, if I if we don't do anything and somebody gets killed by this thing, they're going to say, why didn't you do anything? But they weren't sure at that point whether it was a hoax, maybe a, a rogue bear. They didn't know what to make of it, but they did follow through. And so that ended up getting tons of media coverage. What, what injury did the kid have exactly? Because they said it was enough to convince him that it was what he said it was real. Like, was it just his arm had cuts on it? Or well, he he wasn't injured in any way. It was you know they they inspected the car which had damage, but the kid itself, you know he, you know he wasn't injured or anything. But he he later t- took a lie detector test for what's for what that's worth and uh you know always stuck to his story and other people had reported seeing the same thing after his incident and even before there were other people who had just never come forward because they didn't know what to say about it either um but yeah he, he didn't have any injuries i think the the evidence in there was more like just they the police were convinced definitely something happened to him he took the lie detector test and and didn't really have anything to gain by saying this. In fact, in retrospect, he wished he didn't because all the the newspapers just hounded this poor kid. 
what do you think this lizard man thing is? I mean, is there a breeding population of humanoid lizards down in the South Carolina swamps or what, what do you think is going on here? Well, you know, that was a hard one to answer because, uh, whereas in some cases or, or something like Bigfoot as a whole, there's just so many reports that you can start to build a better picture with the lizard man they're just not there wasn't as many sightings and it happened in a very sort of a condensed couple of years um that you know i i think personally and you know without too many spoilers it, it could possibly have been a bigfoot uh living in a swampy area because the the you know the biological possibility of any sort of a hybrid you know human slash reptile or any of that just is is way out there and i mean there's other there's other possibilities or theories that perhaps if some a population of of you know theropod dinosaurs had stayed alive they would have evolved to walk bipedally or something like that and then you get all all way off into other theories like reptilian race of beings that live underground or but you know to me there's there's not a big cave system out there in south carolina there's you know the underground thing seems unlikely and and if it was sort of this race of extraterrestrial reptilians why in the world would they be in a swamp that seems indicative of animals so to me i was looking at some of the some of the police reports and some of the witnesses literally said it looked like it had like brownish hair and one of them even said we think it might have been a sasquatch so to me it was like well what if what if you had sort of a uh, a, a Bigfoot or a population of them that lived in the swamp. It could have been covered in algae. It, it could have even had a skin condition or loss of hair that gave people the impression it was reptilian in some way when it was, in fact, and, and you see this with, you know, bears with mange. And if you take the hair off of an animal, they looked even more strange. So, you know, my sort of working theory was that perhaps it was it was a bigfoot and people took it as in those seconds that they they saw it in the frightening moments perhaps they they thought it was a lizard type thing of course it was a bigfoot those hillies were drinking moonshine and just think they saw a lizard it was a bigfoot <laughs> case closed that's that's one person told me that oh well, yeah, and I, yeah. I totally understand uh, that taking the hair off something, it looks really weird, which is why I've started wearing a beard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been down to Scape or a Swamp Cliff? <laughs> <laughs> not that I know of. I don't, I'm not sure where we shot. In, we we in went South to Carolina. one swamp down there. We actually had action. Yeah. South Carolina is a, like, that's an unexploited gem for squatch. I mean, it's got, it's surrounded by states with high incident reports, but there's such a small population out there. And, there's not a lot of people in swamps. I mean, humans avoid swamps almost at all costs, usually, you know, so. Yeah, yeah the humans that are in swamps avoid other humans. Right. And also, what people might uh, recognize your voice as the host of Small Town Monsters documentaries being the narrator. Yeah, when did that come into play? Is that after the, the Lizard Man book, or is that later on? I believe that was right after the Lizard Man book. I, oh, well, good timing then. Yeah, nice. I, I was at, I, it was my first appearance at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, and I believe I just had those two books out. And uh, I met Seth Breedlove, who is the director and founder of Small Town Monsters Film Company from Ohio. And he came up and was interested in talking, and we talked about our, our sort of, love for these small town monsters cases you know and that's kind of what i'd been writing about it at the time he was talking about maybe writing a book and uh you know we just talked about that subject and of course he was like you know boggy creek is one of the best and so forth and then uh later on you know he started decided to go film with this and started shooting films and then uh and then later on he, when he got to the third film, which was uh, he wanted to, he wanted to do the Boggy Creek subject, and naturally, you know, he knew I had done the research and knew the area and stuff, so he proposed that we kind of collaborate on that on that uh, 
subject and we did and you know originally it was just i was just going to work on that one because i was you know the boggy creek guy or whatever and uh he had me narrate it to give it this sort of personal feel and i'm i'm a little bit i'm in the scenes and i'm interviewing people well it turned out so well and people liked my narration and my involvement that he thought well let's just keep doing this and then i the next film was the mothman of point pleasant so in that one i just simply narrated it i'm not in it um and that's how that happened which is has been great not only just to be involved with the documentary that he shot boggy creek monster which i think is a great documentary but just to have sort of branched out and been able to be involved in the film aspect and to lend my voice to the to small town monsters and and later ones like momo that you guys are in i'm i'm on screen in that as well but uh yeah it's been super fun stay tuned for more bigfoot and beyond with cliff and bobo we'll be right back after these messages sonidos of our music sonidos of our voices sonidos of our stories Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso en Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. What's the most surprising thing you've discovered or because uh, you've worked on I mean Cliff and I mostly do Bigfoot stuff but you're you're a true generalist you cover everything what's something that you thought no way when you started and then you kind of came around like man I think there's something to this like is there something that really surprised you yeah, I mean thinking in one aspect of that is in general I discovered that there are some really great incredible witnesses that have seen things in my opinion that are even weirder and harder to explain than Bigfoot and you know the the lizard man would be one where a few of those witnesses man I was like I don't know what this person saw but they saw something strange that I I can't begin to explain and and you know the other side of that, there I've been, you know, shown or part of people have shared with me some like river monster type stuff, quote unquote, like things in southern rivers and things, which I always must say, ah, you know, I never really thought much about it. I mean, in terms of water creatures, you know, things like Champ and Ogopogo, which obviously have a great body of, you know, witnesses and plausible possible evidence there's been these other things where it's like stuff moving around in southern rivers where they've i've been shown a video or talked to people where i'm like well you know maybe there's something to this you know just just things like that where i've come across a witness that seemingly has a good tale and then suddenly i find that there's other witnesses that had seen something that sort of corroborate it so those are usually the surprising things on something i never thought about and then suddenly i find a whole bevy of witnesses that start building a story around one area and is it generally one type like because you're thinking of something specific is it like one type of creature or is there a variety of creatures from one particular area well i guess it's a variety i mean and and a lot of these are just end up where you, you just don't have a lot of sightings. You don't, you're lucky if you have a video or a photo. So there's not a lot to go on. So there's never been, I mean, I, I don't suppose like anything where I had never heard of it. And then suddenly I had a, you know, a plethora of information. But I, so I think it's just here and there. I guess it's just those weird stories that you come across you know because i've written books and because i've been part of small town monsters people tend to share things and the way i'm the way i guess i write the books that i'm balanced and i don't you know i just tell the story people are not afraid to tell me some tell me some strange things that have happened simply because they know i'm not going to judge them i'm simply just recording that and it is what it is and the person you know whatever they describe so it's not just one sort of creature if that makes any sense 
after the Lizard Man book and you started participating in Seth Breedlove's Small Town Monster series, um, what next, man? Because we have six books to cover, apparently. I, I'm not even sure I can name all six of your books. And I'm, I hate to say that because I, I consider myself your friend. Um, but you know, where are we going with this? What's, what's after this one? Well, I thought, you know, the next thing I wanted to cover after that is circle back to, you know, my number one thing is Bigfoot. And I thought, okay, we've got the legend of Boggy Creek, but in the span of, you know, prior to me writing that book and all the times I've, you know, looked into Bigfoot and especially since I had started, you know, actively investigating these things, I'd gotten a lot more reports and learned of a lot more cases in the southern U.S. that were significant Bigfoot flaps or cases or uh, sightings, important evidence. And so I thought, I need to do a southern Bigfoot book because that to me is, you know, that's the area where I've explored and I live in and, you know, I feel I'm sort of a southern guy. So I thought a southern Bigfoot book is the way to go so that became uh what i call beyond boggy creek in search of the southern sasquatch and i just i kind of used boggy creek as sort of a springboard because the premise was that you know beyond boggy creek it was like boggy creek is perhaps the most famous southern sasquatch case but if you go beyond that all through the deep south there's so many other things i mean skunk apes and uh you know things like you know sightings and wood boogers and all the you know alabama has sightings and tennessee and georgia has you know sightings the elkins creek cast all that stuff and so so that was uh basically me going around the south to roughly 10 states and talking about the history of the sightings and you know the modern reports of that have taken place in the deep south Hey, Clint, didn't you think that the Elkins Creek cast might be fake now? No, no, I don't think that at all. But I do think that someone touched it. There are uh, finger marks and indeed an entire palm print in the middle of the foot. Um which is unfortunate, but that's just what happens with people. You know, like uh I'm sure a lot of our listeners, and I know you, Bobo, have a dog. I don't know. Lyle, do you have a dog? No. No. Okay. Well, you, you know what dogs are. You've seen them. Uh, but basically, like if you show a dog something, the first thing it does is smell it and then it puts it in its mouth, you know, because the smell is the, the, the dominant sense in dogs. If you show something to a human, the first thing they do is look at it and then they touch it. Every single time I see it, in, I see it in the museum here every single day. People are touching all sorts of stuff that, you know, I got to make sure I put out things that are appropriate to be touched, you know, for that very reason. But um, and so I'm finding going through the data set of casts right now that a whole lot of casts have been touched. Now, skeptics would argue that they've been augmented or, in fact, even fabricated. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case in all of these, and I don't think that's necessarily the case in the Elkins Creek cast either. But you, plain as day, you can see finger marks and a palm print um, with, uh, I believe it's a right. I'd have to go double-check the cast. It's actually at the museum. I can go take a look. Um, and the palm is uh, towards the... It's probably about in the middle of the foot, and the fingers would be pointing towards the heel. But yeah, sure enough, man, there's a palm print in the middle of it, and which is unfortunate because a, a sheriff took it. You'd think that uh, sheriffs would know better. But then again, I have casts from Bob Titmus um, who had uh, that show the same sort of features. I have a cast from Peter Byrne shows the same sort of features on it. I've got a cast from British Columbia, same sort of features again and again and again. Even the best among us do that sort of thing. Uh, but no, I don't, uh, I know it's a long answer, but no, I don't think it's necessarily hoaxed. I do think that it was touched. Um, I'm not, sh- I don't think it was augmented because sometimes what happens with people is they see the print in the ground and it's very, very shallow and they might, um, touch it to make sure that plaster stays in it. Um, but that's not a good idea, but that's, I think that is the idea of what these people had in their head at the time. Um, and unfortunately the Elkins Creek cast shows, um, impressions and see the, the real damage uh, as far as that's concerned is that as most people know, the Elkins Creek cast, um, is reported to have dramatic lithics on it. But now that we know that it was touched, there's that ambiguity. What are those, are those dramatic from a Sasquatch or are they from the person who touched the cast? 
you know, that's the damage done in this case. I don't think the Elkins Creek cast was necessarily hoaxed, but now that it, we know that it's been touched, we have to throw those derms out, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. And I, I actually interviewed that Sheriff Aiken that had taken that, or Deputy Aiken, I think it was a deputy at the time. But yeah, I, I, I had the opportunity to interview him and talk about that. I, I even went down there to Elkins Creek and took a look around. But yeah, you know, those are this, those pieces of evidence that come up and then luckily we're able to scrutinize them and have them. It, it's something that we can physically look at, you know, and then and then keep discussing it and, and trying to find the true answers. But, uh, you know, interesting stuff you know the story behind that and whatever if it's if it's true it's definitely one of those dramatic incidents that sort of chalks up into the history of southern bigfoot yeah he was emailing with me for a while and he let, let me in on a lot of things that i had no idea about you know and i think that'd be a really interesting thing for our readers can you give us uh, a few minutes on the elkins creek situation and what led to that cast yeah um basically the elkins creek is it's a little bit south of Atlanta. Um, not, not incidentally, not very far from where they film the TV series walking, uh, walking dead. But, uh, anyway, the sheriff's office were getting calls from this couple that lived down there off the Creek back in the woods, uh, you know, kind of an isolated rural dwelling there. And they were getting calls from these people. And these people were saying, you know, there's, there's something, somebody or something snooping around our house it keeps coming back you know it's thrown stuff at the house and would call every once in a while and you know they would dispatch a deputy okay we'll go check it out and by the time the deputy got there there's no one to be found and you know they couldn't figure out what it was they just figured well it's an animal or or perhaps somebody's messing with the with this older couple well that just kept going on and on and you know, it ramped up. There, something like ripped the the door off of this area where they stored some uh, g- grain or something. And there was a tire that it was out there that had been thrown way up in this tree, impossibly high. And the couple was just sort of in a frenzy. So the dep- deputy Aiken went out there several times at night when these people would call. But if, but again, every time he got there, he's like, nobody's around. It, he got to thinking that, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's like somebody, you know, manufacturing drugs down here or moonshiners or whatever that's trying to run these old people out. So, I mean, his first thought was this is criminal activity. It was people. But, uh, you know, the, the residents just seemed so sincere in this. They definitely weren't making it up. Something was coming around there. So he, he asked if he could come down there during the day when he was off duty because he worked the night shift. And so they said, sure. So one day he went down there and then he could look around and look for tracks and other evidence to try to sort this out. And he found this little trail that went back through the woods down to the creek. So he said, well, that's probably where people are coming up and accessing their property. So he went down that little trail to Elkins Creek and he said he was poking around down there when he noticed these this set of huge tracks and he said when he when he saw it you know he he just got the chills and he thought what is that and he said he even you know put his hand on his sidearm and was a little bit alarmed well he went down to the creek and noticed that it was a short probably three or four steps that looked like it had been walking in the creek and then stepped up on this muddy sort of piece of the embankment and then on up into the to the woods where it left no more tracks but so there was a couple of tracks that were in the water and then one that was in the mud which is the one that ultimately we see it was pretty clear and it was huge i mean this thing you know if you you know you know it's like huge and uh so he thought you know holy crap what is this this is seems like it's either a elaborate hoax or some kind of a bigfoot like creature so he actually had some plaster in his truck so he went back got it and made that that one uh cast of that foot impression and according to his story he you know he went off and he he learned 
there was some actual sightings of Bigfoots around there that he learned of, and which I think at that point he just got to thinking, well, this, this is this is a Bigfoot. He didn't really know what do you tell the people. <laughs> You've got a Bigfoot problem. And he just let it go, and it kind of died off. And I, guess, I don't remember if the people moved. They were an older couple. But anyway, he just kept this track for several years, and it wasn't until he was hanging out with some guys that he happened to mention oh yeah i i've cast what i think is a bigfoot track and these are bigfoot enthusiasts i can't remember the guy's name but he's a georgia guy and they're like really can we see it so he brought it and showed it to them and then they were the ones that sort of you know gave it publicity within the bigfoot community that uh, this deputy had taken the track so then it was eventually passed on to meldrum and this guy jimmy chilcutt who lived in texas who was a fbi fingerprint analyst and, and that's when all the things about you know there could be uh, dermoglyphs and all that uh, so that that was the story and that's the cast that that we now have yeah, and of course, a, a little uh, sad ending on that cast story as well is that the original is now gone. Mm. Uh, the original cast was actually broken in shipping. Um, if I have the story right, and of course, I should probably uh, verify this, but I'm pretty sure this is right. Um, Dr. Meldrum borrowed the cast, made a copy of it, and then shipping it back to the deputy, it actually broke. Um, there were actually, uh, Jeff told me there were actually. Uh, there were forklift like punctures in the box and apparently destroyed the cast somehow in shipping. So that's kind of a lesson for all of us. Um, either, you know, be sure to make copies of your cast or, or don't, I'm not sure which way to go on that story. I I say, be sure to make copies of your cast because you never know when that one's going to be gone. But then again, I guess if he had not, had a copy made by Dr. Meldrum, then uh, that would have never happened. So I'm not sure how to go on that one. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say, but yeah, they're, they're fragile. I mean, I guess you can't be too careful in in shipping, and if you could possibly drive it yourself, it'd probably be the safest way. But I, I, I have a copy of it, but I would say mine's probably fourth generation. I, I don't remember the exact chain, but... Uh, second, yours is second, by the way, because you got it from me. And I got mine from Meldrum. I made a mold of it. Uh, where did I get that? Maybe I, that did came from you, but I, I like actually poured one of my poured it myself from another one that I copied. But yeah. Oh, okay, I thought, I thought I made you, I thought I made you that one, but I could be wrong. I can't. Oh, by the way, that guy is Steve Hyde, I believe. The, the Steve guy. Hyde. That's right. Yeah, Steve. That's, that's right. the, the researcher's name who you're looking for. Yeah been a while since i was thinking about that book but uh yeah yeah one of my favorites and then i you know like i said i got to go down to elkins creek and poke around so it's always fun to i mean that's one thing i enjoy most about this and writing the books and people that have read my books know that when possible i actually go to locations and you know i can describe the area and it's fun to you know okay here's the track and i talk to the witness and to actually go to that spot and it really kind of puts the whole thing in perspective if, if you know, you can see it. So it's, it's always fun. Yeah, I think it's a much – you have to go to the spot and really to wrap your head around what it is and what where it was and all that other stuff. You just there's, there's no substitute for it. Right. And I mean, you know, as much as I can economically do it, I definitely do. And, you know, sometimes even, you know, if I'm doing a, a Bigfoot conference somewhere and I, I kind of research like what's nearby that I could just, you know, go parlay this into a, a jaunt where I can go see a famous site or visit with a witness or something. So I'm always trying to work an angle to, to visit things in person, you know. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So after the um, Beyond Boggy Creek, uh, then what? What was the next step in your in your career here? So the next, I, I all along I've been writing for the horror magazine Rue Morgue, which is it comes out of uh, Toronto, but it's distributed all over. And by the way, the Berrickman family, we subscribe. I just want to know, let, you, let you know that. Yes, yes, that's right. And uh, and so 
you know, I'd been, I was sort of their cryptozoology guy because they, they love the subject of cryptids. And of course, a lot of horror movies and things, you know, incorporate Bigfoot or Chupacabra or what have you. So, you know, I kind of had, I kind of, as a horror movie fan, it was fun. I also had the perspective of actual facts, you know, about these cases and about the creatures. So I had a column and occasionally I would write features. Well, they, they were doing a library, what they call a Rue Morgue library series. And each of these was like a standalone paperback book that featured one certain subject. So my column was called Monstro Bizarro. And so they had me do a book that was all cryptid stuff. And part of it was it pulled some articles and past issues that I had done and also some new things and uh, just a conglomeration of just legends and lore of creatures as well as how they fit into movie culture and pop culture like cryptid. There's an article on cryptid toys and just, just everything about cryptid. So it was really fun to put that together and it's heavily illustrated and uh, that, that again, was sort of I had a a readership that I got from you know the Rue Morgue side that were horror movie fans that you know appreciated mon- the monstrous aspect I guess if you of you if you will about cryptids but those were also my fans so I was able to kind of write to them and and to expose them with some more facts you know behind Mothman or more facts behind Bigfoot or or whatever a dogman. And and uh, so I thought that was cool, and, and you know, being able to write cryptozoology for people who are probably not don't know much about it, maybe you know, as far as what are the history and the facts. So that Monstro Bizarro was my, I guess that was what my fourth fourth book. Fourth book, huh? Well, two more to go, man. You're down in Texas. That's like kind of like one of the. Central points for dogman phenomena. What do you, what do you think about that stuff? Like that stuff. I got into that the last few years. Pretty deep. It's pretty pretty intriguing. It's 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 hard to wrap your mind around it. Yeah, I agree. It's just hard to uh, hard to rationalize just what it is. But yeah, over the years, the, I've talked to more and more witnesses who claim they've seen these dogmen and and quite a few, quite a number of those. Yeah, like in the Texas area and. There's some old cases dating back, like the Converse werewolf, and then and some other old kind of dogman cases that that are in Texas. So that's that's I mean certainly anything kind of werewolf like it's it kind of appeals to all my my clicks all my monster buttons. And uh, one thing I'd like to look into more. I don't know about writing a book or something, but certainly uh, dogman is fa- the dogman phenomenon is fascinating. Really, did, you, yep. did you ever get a sense that it was like a, a real creature or just straight paranormal? I, yeah, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to imagine that it's a, you know, a real creature in terms of just the biology of it. And why would it, why would it stand up on four legs if it's more canid? It, I, I can see that if there was some sort of a strange breed or hybrid of this of wolf or canid of some sort that it it could walk upright briefly or may have some tendency to do it but to walk upright and you know in an extended period i just don't know what to think and so you know a lot of that kind of does start bridging over into the paranormal zone which you know plays in all sorts of theories as to who knows what it could be you know but I think it's it's cool that people have reported seeing things like that, but I have no idea exactly what it is. Have you talked to one really good witness that had a story that really stuck out to you on Dogman? Yeah, I've talked to a couple recently that were guys that I, you know, I consider fair you know credible as far as I could tell and and they know people I know and you know they're there uh, were good witnesses, and one of those had a sighting in Texas when he was hunting, and he got a, a, a view of one of these in daylight. I mean, it was daylight hours. It was walking through a field area. So in that case, to, in my mind, 
left little room for confusion. You know, it wasn't a shadow. You could, you know, he could tell if it was a bear. It wasn't a normal canid. It wasn't a Bigfoot. You know, he said it looked, you know, for all intents and purposes, like a werewolf type thing. And it walked bipedally. And I'm like, you know, if this guy said he, you know, saw what he saw in the, in that those conditions, it's just kind of chilling to think is is are those things walking around out there? You know, I, I don't know. You know, it, that one just stood out to me just simply because I'm just picturing myself when I used to hunt as a kid or whatever, and I'm in a field. And many of these fields I've crossed through, jumped over barbed wire fences or whatever, and. And to see a werewolf walk by, I'd be freaked out. Yeah, horrifying. <laughs> Absolutely horrifying. I, that's it's one of those things, man. I say it a lot. I hope they're not real. <laughs> exactly. It's like I, I want Bigfoot. I want I want to you know I want that to be real, and I want it to be proved. Dogman, I don't know. I'm I'm not I'm not real gung ho to to run into one of those. I'd like to see one from a car, but that's about it. Like yeah, we could well we could have like those drive-through safaris. Like you know, like you look at the baboons outside the car. We could have cryptids, and the dogman is out. You know, you're safe in the car, and the dogman is you know out there. Dude, you've seen too many horror movies because you know, you you know that you're not safe in the car. You've seen enough. You should know better, exactly. man. Cars aren't going to do anything for you in a situation like that. In fact, I can remember once going to a safari park when I was a kid and there was baboons. And of course, I was like, oh, cool, you know, because I think a lot of us that are just love the Bigfoot uh, subject are fascinated at looking at any apes or great apes or baboons or monkeys. And yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, baboons. And they did. They like jumped all over the car and we're, my mom was screaming. <laughs> it was, like, uh, it, was uh, it was, as I recall, kind of scary. And we, we promptly left. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Next book, book five out of six. W- w- which one's this? So book five was something that I had kind of wanted in, to include in beyond Boggy Creek, but Number one, it was a little bit too far north, and two, there was way more to the story that would just wouldn't just neatly fit into a section, and that is the Momo, the Missouri Monster story. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I did know about that book. Yeah, all right, good. I'm a better friend than I thought. Good. <laughs> right. So, uh, yes, I, I believe those have been proudly sold at, at your museum. So, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Momo was just one of those that it sort of became like the, it was like the Falk monster. It was sort of a regional creature that had just, um, you know, created kind of its own category. Like I would talk to witnesses who had had Bigfoot sightings in Missouri and they would always say, yeah, you know, I saw a Momo. It was so, you know, it was so much that the name Momo, which is a, uh, a mashup of, the abbreviation for Missouri, M-O, and monster, Momo. So, you know, I thought it was interesting that, you know, a Bigfoot scene in Missouri is called a Momo. And when I looked at the story, which had uh, kind of taken place mostly in 1971 and 1972 in the area of hard, hard to write in a book because the town is called Louisiana, Missouri. Uh, (laughs) I'm so confused. I know. Try writing a book where the town is called Louisiana. It was like, you know, it was very tricky. But uh, that's on the very eastern side, right along the Mississippi River. And the town, sort of the bluffs kind of overlook the the mighty Mississippi right there. But, um, you know, Momo just had a lot of weird stuff to it. It was kind of like Boggy Creek where some kids saw it and it scared them to death. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the locals were plunging into the woods in search of this thing, the sheriff's office. And, um, you know, there was sightings and even stranger people had seen strange lights in the sky around the same time as they had seen this, you know, Bigfoot-like creature of which even the description was kind of scary because it was described as, you know, 
for all intents and purposes, like a Bigfoot. It stood upright on two legs. It was covered in hair. But it, the, the witnesses, especially the kids who saw it in daylight, said it had a, a kind of a pumpkin-sized, a larger head, and it had hair that just hung straight over its eyes. And you know, just kind of gave it this really kind of ominous aspect. So it was just... You know, I thought, well, nobody's written a book on Momo either, and it had a lot of cool newspaper coverage and a lot of, you know, weird stuff to the case. So, so uh, I set out to document that. You know, as usual, I went up there to Louisiana, Missouri, and you know, interviewed people, looked around, checked out the places where it had been seen, and that resulted in the book uh, Momo: The Strange Case of the Missouri Monster. And then, of course, later on, the small town monster thing, too, uh, which I thought was fascinating. And not just because Bobo and I are in it, of course, and because Bobo's even bigger on the big screen, turns out. Uh, but uh, I thought that was fascinating because he actually tracked down, I'm, I'm assuming through your help, a lot of the original witnesses of that event and interviewed them about what happened way back in, you know, at that time period in the 70s there. Um, so I'm assuming you, you had a hand in all that, tracking down these witnesses for Seth. Yeah, somewhat. Uh, he was able to find a few others that, you know, between the two of us, he found some that uh, that had, you know, part of the history and had, had seen some things as well as, you know, some of the ones I had built friendships with when I was writing the book. And so, yeah, that definitely helped. And the you know, being able to, to shoot that and to be on camera to do the narration, because it basically, in that one, I had to do all the narration literally on camera. And uh, it, as you know, these are fun and guerrilla type shoots that we do. And when I got there, I was like, yeah, that's a lot of text, dude. You guys have like, you know, <laughs> do y'all have a uh, teleprompter or cue cards or anything? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, man. Uh, you know, I can memorize a lot, but I, I've done, I did a, I guess I was the host of one of the episodes of Monsters and Mysteries in America, and they had a teleprompter, you know, because a lot of lines and whatever, this is even more. But when I got there, he's like, yeah, man, we, you know, we we wrote some stuff, we got these big poster boards, and well, they, they had the writing, but it was kind of, it wasn't very big, and then at the bottom, you could tell it was starting to get squeezed, and it kind of was going downward <laughs> and so i'm like trying to oh. and, and and then after about three scenes like well yeah that's all the cards we had time to make so i was i was laughing i said well just never never mind i would just i had almost memorized all of it anyway but i would just study that section and then then shoot it you know but just the cue yeah. card was like the, the line dropping and it was super fun but but anyway, it was great to to bring that to the screen and, and the way he did it with the with you know having a a supposed film made about Momo, which really kind of captured what that whole thing was. It was just weird as all get out, and that's how the town literally reacted. And and of course, you guys rolling there was just fantastic. I loved watching that. I was like, because I know Mars Off Hill, and I was like, yeah, it's just super cool to see you guys, you know, doing those. The, those parts man it was fun it was cold but it was fun yeah I, I actually got sick because my my costume that he sent me up with the cowboy hat and whatever didn't have a jacket <laughs> thanks seth i got sick but that's all right it was worth it it was totally fun um and and i think one if nothing else bobo's and my appearance in momo um proved to everybody that no we're not actors <laughs> Well, <laughs> clearly we're not actors, though. People ask me that on Finding Bigfoot. You on Finding Bigfoot? You guys actors? Well, clearly, right? No, yes. Watch us act, and that and that'll be answered immediately. No, we're not actors. I, I guess, and that, that's kind of to your credibility because you know you, your show, what you are on Finding Bigfoot is literally you, and what you see in Momo is is portraying uh, someone else. But I, I I just liked it just simply because I always saw this like it's Seth just has some amazing ability to organize all this stuff where I'm like, man, how do you do all this? <laughs> how do you know, on a smaller, not a, not a lot of budget and just the fact that he, fact that he pulls it off. It's always rewarding to see. Yeah. Yeah. He, for does, sure. he does a lot with a little, cause for how low his budgets have been, for how cool his films are, he, he's, he's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I I think people are quite surprised when you 
when they see these movies and you know if i try to stress that we have very little budget and they're competing with other documentaries and other movies on amazon streaming these other movies are you know 20 times the budget you know it's like wow if we actually had budgets like that could you imagine what we could do (laughs) you know yeah well, so now you have, you have a brand new book out too. Like literally, how, when was it released? A couple, like within a couple of weeks from now, right? Like a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. It's just been um, three or three or so weeks. Um, yeah this 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 book is called Sinister Swamps: Monsters and Mysteries from the Mire, and this is actually the book that sort of I was sort of thinking about writing all the way back right after Beast of Boggy Creek when I did my swamp tour because, you know, it was just something I, I was investigating at the time. It's something I've always also loved is swamps. I don't know why, but, you know, every time I watched when I was a little, if I saw a horror movie with a swamp or like almost every episode of Scooby-Doo, you know, had, you know, there was the haunted house and there was always a swamp next to it. I just thought, man, it's so spooky in the vibe of that, that as an adult, I just find those places, you know, beautiful and fascinating and peaceful as well as ominous and spooky. So the new book, uh, I investigate some of the most notorious swamplands in North America that have a long history of sightings of all kinds of strange phenomenon. I didn't limit it just to cryptids. It's it's just whatever goes on there and there's a lot of cryptid content a lot of bigfoot stuff but you know ghosts spook lights people disappearing uh lost villages planes that have allegedly crashed into these swamps that were never found uh any number of just strange occurrences so it was it was fun to be able to write a book where i could just really focus more on the geographic type of location and then just talk about what all weird stuff have people reported in these areas. Yeah, because really at the end of the day, and I think from the very beginning, if I gather uh, if I gather what you've shared with us correctly, you're really just a fan of the weird. <laughs> it, it's the weird that hooked you. Um, and Bigfoot is just one um, manifestation of that. And and so this is it seems like a dream come true to write something like this, where you don't have to stay on the rails, like everything's got to be Falk Monster, everything's got to be Momo in this case. No, you can do whatever you want. It's just all based around one of your favorite kinds of biomes, one of your favorite kinds of habitat weird swamps so just a, a celebration of the weird and all the strange things that happen in these weird places where people don't go unless you're weird <laughs> yes exactly i think that 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 encompasses that because yeah i just love all all the weird you know people reporting sightings of something that seems impossible in modern day uh, times and of course one of those it being bigfoot has been you know in fact monster has been a huge focus but as well i'm always you know and as you research these things you do get all these other kinds of reports you know among all you you know, primarily, I, I think I get Bigfoot reports, but then I get all this other stuff. And over over the last, I mean, this has literally been about, you know, eight years or, or something. Anytime I got one, you know, if the location was swampy or whatever, I would, I would put that in a folder of stuff that happened near swamps. And I started to see that hey, there's a ton of this, not just in terms of, you know, I would get swampy Bigfoot things, but then I'd get these other random spooky things or or what have you. So I just started kind of collecting that. And um, as I, you know, people would also ask, are you ever going to write a book about Honey Island Swamp, Honey Island Swamp Monster? That's one that people ask a lot. I thought it wasn't quite enough to make up a complete book, but in, ter- in terms of writing a book about swamps man it makes one of the best chapters in there and now i could tell the whole story of honey island swamp and sightings of the creature and stuff so that's one of the chapters and um you know other other famous swamps like hockamock in massachusetts part of the bridgewater triangle the great dismal swamp which i mean with a name like great dismal swamp you can only imagine that it's got some strange activity um okafinoki and, and other ones closer to my home 
uh, Caddo Lake, and I even include the, the Boggy Creek area because it's part of a place called Mercer Bayou, which Bayou Swamp. So again, I'm able to kind of always incorporate some newer sightings that have have occurred in the Boggy Creek area. So I, somehow that always works into any of my books. But um, yeah, the new books was really fun to write just because I could really sp- spread the 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 wings and swamps. I think gener- the spooky environment gave me some of my best prose and descriptions of of landscapes that I've ever written just because by nature those places are mysterious and, and spooky. Well, I can't wait to get my teeth into that one, man. Uh, I'm excited about this because I am also a fan of the weird. And frankly, uh, like like Bobo said at the onset of this conversation, you're just a really good writer. Um, and so you you really do paint a picture, but you don't go overboard with it. It's, you, you say just enough to put the reader in that place. So to kind of so they can wrap their head around the environment and kind of take the place of the character in your narrative. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to reading this book. And by the way, before I go any further, because I'm thinking of it, where can our listeners pick up any of your books? Is, is there a central hub that they can buy from you or from the publisher? Or where would you like our readers or our listeners to uh go to to buy your stuff well uh the best place you can get the book would be from me if you would like autographed books and if you go to my website at lyleblackburn.com and hit the shop link there it goes to my online store which i have you know all the books as well as other cool stuff like beast of boggy creek t-shirts and even the dvds of the small town monsters movies but of course uh, all my stuff is also available on Amazon, and you can get it in uh, paperback, and some of them are in hardback, and you can also get the Kindle edition. So, so really just uh, either Amazon or best place would be to hit up my website. And, uh, you know, my website's also got links to other things, my Falk Monster site and, and other information. So definitely hit it up. So if, if what if, if somebody buys the Kindle edition, will you sign their phone or iPad for them? I am willing to do that. And I, I've had people show up at conferences and say, I don't know what to do. I, I bought the, you know, I, I bought your book on Kindle. I love it. I, I, I want to get your autograph. And sometimes they've bought the paperback just so they can get the autograph or, you know, I sign, you know, their arm or something. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, that's the weird part. And which is, I don't know. I still love books. I mean, I grew up, like I said, I, one of the points that jumped me into this was getting that scholastic book in school. I've still got that little book and, uh, you know, that just having the book. So, but the Kindle thing is good too, because people can, you know, there's a lot of sales in nowadays in digital. So it's great to have that. Yeah. Cool. Lyle, I know it took us a year to get you on the show, but man, hopefully it won't be another year till we have you back on. That was a fun conversation, kind of looking over your career so far as an author, an investigator, and a little bit more than that. So thank you so much for coming on Bigfoot and Beyond. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Okay, Lyle, from one rocker to another, thanks a lot for coming on, brother. And I'll be seeing you at the end of July, July 25th at the Gatlin, Tennessee, Gatlinburg, Tennessee at the Smoky Mountain Bigfoot Conference. Right on, man. I look forward to it. It's always great to talk to you guys and uh, look forward to more adventures down the road. All right. Have a good night. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and listening to another podcast of Bigfoot Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. If you liked what you heard, hit that like button, give us a thumbs up and share. If you know anyone that might enjoy it, spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. So until next time, in honor of Lyle Blackburn, keep it swampy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 